This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Michael Frazers, thanks very much for making a debut on, on Talk Your Book. I'm really excited to get to, to sit down and have a chat today. Uh, I thought before we get into your company you want to explore, it'd be good for, for viewers and, and listeners to get a feel for Fraser's Capital Partners and what your guys' investment philosophy is because it, it feels like it's quite unique for the Australian market. Sure. Well, uh, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, I guess our strategy kind of stems from the observation that or kind of the reality that most of us grow up reading the same investment books. You know, we have the same approach. We talk about free cash flow. We're schooling that idea of trying to find a dollar and pay 50 cents for it and get that kind of 2x uplift or less. Um, but the reality is, you know, the best performing stocks of, of our generation over the last 10, 20, even 30 years have not been companies that fit that profile. You know, generally they're growing extremely fast and, you know, they're investing heavily to meet that growth. So the companies we look for are those that have explosive growth and true customer love. And we found that using those two principles is actually a really powerful framework because it gives you the right answer to the question of whether to buy these controversial stocks or not. So it's so local examples that people know are things like Afterpay, um, offshore companies like Tesla, Netflix, early days, Amazon, like in all these situations, there were devoted fan bases. You know, in Afterpay's case, people were tweeting and posting on Instagram about it. You know, nobody does that about payments. That's true customer love. Um, but then the explosive growth part is also important because it means they're actually delivering. They're growing exceptionally fast. They're attracting customers. Um, they're bigger, better, and stronger every day. So, and a typical example of that would be something like Apple. So you think about Apple when they launched the iPhone. There was actually some pretty serious competition. You know, they had Nokia, BlackBerry, Samsung, Microsoft. Um, but Apple was the only company that people would queue outside stores and obsess about and sell out months in advance. And if you fast forward over the next 10 years, that customer love translated into explosive growth. They're able to charge a few hundred dollars extra for every iPhone and, you know, created $2 trillion worth of, values. So we found it a, a really interesting framework. Um, I encourage people to try it. Like even if you look at something like Bitcoin, think about it in those lens, like did it have true customer love? Well, yes, people obsessed about it. They quit their jobs. You know, they couldn't stop talking about it. Did it have explosive growth? Yeah, usage went up, you know, exponentially. So even in something completely different, that framework really gives you the right answer. And so what we're trying to do is create a portfolio of companies just like that and kind of crank the dial on that explosive growth and true customer love as far as we can. So, you know, the organic growth rate of our portfolios would average over 100%. And do you think sometimes investors, particularly retail investors, oversimplify things a little bit? Stocks are either value or their growth and, and they lump all, um, you know, really high PE or high revenue stocks in the growth bracket and maybe can sometimes ignore the, the rapid speed of growing to separate rich growth companies still represent value at an incredibly high multiple and which ones are just caught up with a, with a trend? Yeah. I mean, they're just completely, you just need a completely different tool set for each of them. You know, if you're analyzing, the value tools are very good for analyzing and comparing different value stocks, like which one's earning the most, what are you paying for a certain level of growth and a certain level of free cash flow? They're very good at kind of distinguishing between them, but growth companies are just different. You know, the, the good ones spend all their free cash flow. You know, they hire people, it's, it's all on human capital, so it's all expense. You know, hire brilliant software engineers, they'll spend on marketing. Um, you know, they won't, the things that make a good value stock are almost the opposite to what makes a good growth stock. You know, you just need a totally different lens and a totally different framework. 
I'd say retail investors generally get these ones right. So if you look at Tesla and Afterpay, you know, that's some of the heaviest shorted stocks in the market. It was professional shorting them, not retail. And if you think about last year, you know, it was retail that was buying. We know, if we look at the flows of who was buying and selling in that, that huge sell-off um, in March 2020, it was net selling by institutions and net buying by retail investors. So retail investors get it right as well as wrong. And you had a, an incredible year last year. I remember following your performance from afar. We like to open up opportunities for humble bragging on, on Chris Judd Invest. So maybe for our viewers that weren't aware of your performance, uh, walk us through how you guys did it uh, last year because it was pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, so it's pretty startling. I mean, we had a we had a we suffered like everybody else. We're fully invested in, in companies like Afterpay, Tesla, Carvana, companies that, that dropped a lot. Um, so things were looking pretty bleak in March. But we just kind of held our nerve and just stayed invested. Like we didn't do anything fancy. We didn't we bought a few things at the bottom, but we also sold a few things at the bottom. You know, we didn't call it if anything we got it wrong. You know, we thought the coronavirus wasn't gonna be a big deal. Um, but once markets really started moving or like moving up and down. You know, we just we just sat, we just held our nerve and just stayed consistent. And that ended up performing um, all the short sellers, all the hedges, um, pretty much everybody else. And we did over 100%. I think it was 108 in the end net of fees by the end of the year. But it really came down to that, that those moments in March, which were pretty scary for all of us. Um, we just stayed invested. And that's kind of what, how, how we believe, what we believe will work the best over the next 10, 20, 30 years as well. You know, you might, the worst thing that can happen is you, is you pick one of these markets perfectly. I mean, I think, I think years ago, I picked like three market movements in a row and then lost 50% in the next one. <laughs> you know? It's like the worst thing you can do is be overconfident. And like, you have to think of a strategy that you can actually run for 10, 20, 30 years. If you optimize for the long term, it becomes very clear that you shouldn't sell every sell-off. You know, you shouldn't sell every rally either. Um, so actually, there are two things that helped us last year. It was not selling in the sell-off. And it was also not selling when we we're up. Mm. Um, we just stayed invested throughout when we're down, when we're up. And I think you need to sit still for both of those things to get those kinds of returns. And what stock did you want to walk us through today? Uh, I actually wanted to walk us through Moderna. Um, so obviously they're famous for, for providing one of the first vaccines. Uh, I think it's a really interesting company. So happy to go into you know, as much detail as, as you have time for. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, let's start with the, the helicopter view of Moderna and, and what they do. Right. So Moderna was set up about nine years ago. The idea was... You know, we obviously have DNA that is then read by mRNA, which is then translated into proteins. Um, the idea is what if you could insert some mRNA in a cell um, so it doesn't affect the DNA, but then create a particular protein um, that could then, you know, have some kind of effect. In this case, the idea is, in the, in the vaccine sense, the idea is, okay, you've got these highly, um, I guess, infectious virus particles, but they have a surface. What if you encode... Um, in the mRNA, the protein for the surface. So your body then learns to kind of react to that. It recognizes that as foreign. Um, but there's no, the harmful parts of the virus aren't there. It's just that surface protein. Um, what if you can do that? Uh, would that be protective? And this was an unanswered question. So a year, I've been aware of this company for a while because I met one of the chief scientific founders, you know, many years ago. Um, and the closest they got was with settler megavirus, which is kind of a type of herpes it's a really, doing vaccine research is a really long grind because they have to be so safe. So if you have somebody with terminally ill cancer, um, you can actually ethically justify giving them quite extreme treatments. You know, if somebody's got a, likely a very short time to live, you can really kind of push boundaries of, of, what, of, of acceptability in terms of safety. You know, if you're going to give 6 billion people a vaccine, it has to be so safe. 
And, you know, we're now seeing with AstraZeneca, there's safety issues that are kind of like in the one in a million range. You know, but even that might not be acceptable. So think about from a business perspective, a development perspective, how expensive and how long those trials must be. And then also, usually people don't really want to pay up for vaccines. It's kind of thing, the sort of thing people need to be dragged into. You know, if they're not compulsory, people generally try and avoid them. Um, so it's a terrible market to be in. But Moderna was just sitting there plugging away for, I think it was, I think they found it nine years ago. So sitting there plugging away, spent, they spent something like $6.5 billion on R&D. Um, their herpes, or their CMV vaccine was a very long way from development. Um, but they happened to do some work, which was funded by the, the US government, uh, on, the other, on, on SARS, SARS-1 and MERS, the kind of cam camel equivalent. So when the epidemic came, you know, within several weeks, or depending when you count the start, very quickly, uh, the genetic sequence was adopted. Moderna could then find the sequence for the spike protein. So they didn't even have any access to the actual virus itself. Mm -hmm. Just the ones and zeros, just, just in this case, kind of the four, you know, codes of DNA. Just that code, they then created their own vaccine. And that is the one that ended up being successful, you know, many months later. And so it's a really interesting story of, firstly, the fact that they are to prove this, the mRNA vaccines worked. Um, but secondly, it kind of marks, I don't want to get too philosophical, but it marks a, a change of, of biology and vaccine development from being a wet science where you do your work in a lab with cells and messy stuff to a digital science where you don't even need the kind of wet lab to kind of develop a vaccine. So it's a really very revolutionary approach. It's a really exciting company. Um, and they've done spectacularly well financially now. Uh, and also in terms of the impact they've had on the world. It's interesting you talk about that wet science versus the, the data aspect of, of Moderna and reading through their presentations, that's really what struck me. They refer to themselves as a, a platform stock. They're very data heavy and they use AI extensively. Maybe dig a little deeper into that idea that they are in fact a platform stock and a, a data stock as opposed to a traditional drug manufacturer. Sure. So the idea is basically what they did with coronavirus, the, the latest coronavirus, um, they could do with effectively any virus, really, or any kind of protein that you wanted to target. Um, there, there's, there's some serious technical challenges in, in, in developing these. One of those is if you, if you just put mRNA into a cell, it just gets, just, just gets destroyed if you inject it into somebody's arm. So they basically had to create a way of creating these layers of effectively like a tiny, almost, look, almost like a, it looks like a little cell, you know, with multiple membranes. Um, and then manufacturing that was really non-trivial, um, that was probably the hardest part of the challenge. It wasn't actually the mRNA bit. It was finding a way to put it in a form, a lipid nanoparticle form, that when you inject it, actually got taken up by cells. Um, really difficult, really complicated. But now that they've done that, the actual mRNA bit's re relatively straightforward to change. Um, they, can, they can adjust the kind of shell to make it hit different organs in the body, different tissues in the body. Um, but really, they can now adapt that and, and, and get spike proteins for firstly, any variants of coronavirus, likely variants of influenza. Um, there's a chance they could be able to adapt it to target cancer. And there's no real reason, theoretically, why that shouldn't work. I mean, you're injecting the mRNA, you're creating the relevant protein that will be recognized by the immune system. You know, it, it really should work. Um, and they should be able to develop treatment after treatment after treatment. And, and there's definitely precedent for that. There's another company, Al Nylum. So they do RNAi, so interference RNA. And they were the first to develop slightly different lipid nanoparticles. And they develop four treatments to market and have an extensive pipeline. So it just shows once you get that lipid nanoparticle right, you can actually develop treatment after treatment after treatment and, and just replenish your pipeline indefinitely.
And so you speak about that pipeline. When you look at a stock like this, what do you feel is their addressable market when you think of not just the, the COVID-19 vaccine they've produced, but the other vaccines they're working on as well? I mean, it's, a, it's enormous. It's almost addressable markets are really hard, tough questions to answer. I'll give you a couple of numbers that are kind of back of the envelope, though. So it's a $60 billion company, roughly. They've got purchase agreements for $19 billion already. It's extremely high margin. Um, they're likely to sell 3 billion doses over the next two years. And they're, they're selling for about $15 to $20 a dose. So, you know, that's like their entire market cap effectively in the next two years, just on coronavirus. And I think the politics of coronavirus, I mean, it's speculation, but the politics of coronavirus is such um, that people will insist on being vaccinated. Like coronavirus will likely become an endemic part of, you know, the world as previous coronaviruses have done. So you don't view that revenue as a one-off that'll be gone in two or three years' time? You think with the variants, it'll be an ongoing revenue stream for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, and, and they're working hard to kind of make that attractive an attractive product. So where they're going is they want to have booster shots that don't just cover all the existing variants um, and all the new variants, but also potentially target new influenza variants. And influenza is much harder because the surface proteins change all the time. Um, it's one of those viruses that has evolved so that there's immense kind of variability on the surface, um, which is why it's so difficult to treat. Uh, so there's a good chance that, you know, every, every year you'll have an annual kind of mRNA dose, potentially from Moderna or potentially from someone else. But it'll almost certainly, my view is, it'll almost certainly happen that you get these, these, these annual shots. And unlike existing, influenza is a tough one. Like now they're mostly, the virus is mostly growing in eggs. Influenza kind of like adapts to the egg environment. You have to kind of pick the surface proteins nine, 10 months in advance. Then obviously they evolved since then. So they're not very good vaccines. Um, but mRNA, as, as we just discussed, can be, can be done very, very quickly. Um, so we do think that just on those respiratory diseases, there, there's a huge market, an ongoing market. It's not just a one-off. And that's before you get to the rest of their pipeline. Maybe talk us through just how deep that pipeline is and just how many vaccines they're working on at the minute. Yeah, sure. So there's... Um, CMV slash herpes, uh, there's Epstein-Barr virus, which is one, if, if you get that, you have, you know, 15, 20 times um, greater chance of getting cystic fibrosis. What would really be the next leg up in value would be if they can prove, uh, do a proof of principle on, on oncology and cancer. If they can find a way to treat or improve the treatment of any cancer. And cancer cells are, are the same, but different. You know, the surface of cancer cells is really important. Um, but obviously you're, you're recognizing adapted human cells rather than completely foreign. Uh, but that it's, it's a pipeline that can basically be indefinitely regenerated. So they've also got candidates in, in the pipeline for Zika, for Nipah. Um, but really it's any virus with a surface protein, which is all of them, you could technically target with their approach. So it's really just a case of allocating priorities from here. And they've got about eight billion bucks of cash on their balance sheet. Do you see that being used to fund that R and D, or do you see them potentially picking off some smaller acquisitive opportunities going forward? Look, I, th I think it's going to be really hard to spend eight billion dollars in R and D. You know, this is one of the most well-resourced companies at the moment, um, and they're expecting to get you know nineteen billion just on their per existing purchase agreements. This is going to be a very cash flow-rich company. Um, as for acquisitions, I'm not sure. I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to. They're, they're probably too big now for anybody to take them over. I don't think you need to think about this in terms of acquisitions for growth. You know, the single best return on investment they'll get is finding a new virus and targeting that protein and spending a few hundred million dollars to take that through the pipeline. I think that's going to be the optimal strategy for them. 
And then lastly, COVID-19, anytime you speak about it, it's a, a very emotive subject. Obviously, uh, Moderna's profited a lot from a, a vaccine, albeit one that many in the world were crying out for. How do you sort of view philosophically companies profiting at such large numbers from, from vaccines that are, um, you know, sort of a must-have for the world to, to open back up? Yeah, I think if, if you think about it, it's kind of magical how these things have just appeared out of thin air. You know, these things didn't exist previously, whether it's a drug or, or these vaccines. You know, they appeared out of thin air because there's a huge commercial drive. Mm-hmm. So this is a nine-year-old company. They spent six, six seven billion dollars on R&D. You know, th- there's there's immense pull factor comes from the fact that they're able to charge for these products. Um, so that's one thing I think you should think about. The other thing is, you know, medicine and, and, and science is so deeply underfunded that whenever you see one of these companies that's research orientated get get this windfall cash. That's no doubt going to be extremely good for all of us. Um, so you've got to balance those two things. You know, it's, it's very few people want to, very few people will spend billions of, very few institutions will spend billions and billions of dollars in R&D. But that's something a company like Moderna has done. Um, you know, and that money's got to come from shareholders, I guess, that want a commercial return for the, the money they've put in. Yeah, exactly. So I'd say, you know, most loss, biotech is mostly a loss-making environment. Like sometimes you have 20 companies going from the same disease and even if one of them succeeds, 19 of them are not going to win the market. You know, it's incredible loss-making. And we, and we invest in early-stage biotechs across the spectrum. So we see that. We see people commit 20 years of their lives to bringing something to market. You know, they, maybe they did their PhD in it and all of a sudden they're CEO of the company and then it fails in phase three. You know, it's so dramatic. There's so much commitment, not just in money, but in like huge chunks of people's lives. Um, but I think something like Moderna should be celebrated, not criticized. You know, there's other, one other really important factor that I think gets overlooked, and that's how good value this, this, this vaccine really is. You know, Australians are paying, you know, six, hundreds of dollars a week to keep people in work. This vaccine is, you know, 15 to $25, max 40. You know, would you pay $40 to be once off vaccinated to save, you know, several hundred dollars a week for, for a year or more? You know, people... People don't want to spend on the science and on the med, but they're so happy to spend on other things. But if you just put those numbers next to each other, um, you can really see that actually Moderna's doing something good here. Well, anytime we speak about COVID or, or vaccines, we've come very hard for people to find on YouTube. So hopefully this, this ep- episode does, uh, does get discovered and it's brilliant the way you've laid it out. So thanks very much, mate, for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.